We turn now to a time of the preaching of God's Word in our service this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our study from the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 through 6, but I'm going to read to verse 11 so that we can hear all that Paul writes to us in this context. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Sends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Let us pray and ask God for help as we hear his word preached. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word, and we need you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we may hear your words of life to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would clear out sin in our hearts, the darkness through the preaching of your law, that it would be revealed who we truly are before you, that we may see ourselves rightly from this text this morning, that you would lead us in repentance before you, and that we would see Jesus Christ as our life this morning. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. The first thing I would like to start off with this morning is the title. Sometimes as a pastor, you come up with titles early on in the week, and as you work through a text and you write your sermon, you end up in different places than where you originally thought you were going to be. So, Where Is Your Glory might be a great title for a sermon on this text coming up, but this morning I would actually like to say it, our title this morning is The Two Paths. There are two paths that this text this morning presents to us. And I'd like to look at these two paths together. Now, you may have come to a point in your life where you had a critical juncture 
a critical moment in time where you knew you had to make a decision and how you made that decision was going to affect the direction of your life in a significant way. Many of these choices include what college you're going to go to, what person you're going to marry, what job you're going to take, what health outcome you're going to choose. Certain, are you going to buy a home? Are you not going to buy a home? And those choices can have all kinds of impacts that we cannot see from them. Well, I believe that this passage this morning presents to us a similar kind of pathway for us, that there is a pathway that leads to destruction, and there is a pathway that leads to safety. We don't want to choose things that's going to lead us into a life of more and more pain, suffering, and sorrow. That's why we agonize over those kinds of decisions. Who are we going to marry? Who are, what house are we going to purchase? Or are we not going to purchase? Can we even purchase a home? These are the different kinds of choices that we have. So firstly, Paul presents to us the path or the way of destruction. And he tells us to look out. Three times he says this word, look out. It's almost unique in the entire corpus of Paul, and he wants us to pay special attention to these words this morning, to look out for these kinds of people. And he gives us three characteristics of these people that we need to look out for. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers, or as some translations put this, evil workers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are not normal words that we encounter in our daily experience. That people tell us to look out for dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. These are some of the harshest words that we encounter about people in the New Testament. And why is Paul telling us to look out for them? Now most Theologians and commentators, as they work through these three characteristics, they want to define what they are. What are these dogs? What is a dog? What does it mean to be a dog? If anything, this means that cats are better in Scripture and dogs are frowned upon. And I, a cat person, approve of this. But this description is of what is a dog? Or what is an evil worker, evil doer? Or what does this mean for someone to be a mutilator of the flesh? Another way to understand this word is those of false circumcision. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. There is a contrast that Paul is painting here between those who are of a false circumcision, mutilators of the flesh, and the true circumcision. Now we can dive into these, and I think it will be helpful, but Paul is getting these words from somewhere in Scripture. And it's important for us to see where Paul gets this in Scripture. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, right in the middle of your Bibles, to Psalm 22. Now, some of you may know this psalm. It's one of the more famous psalms in all of Scripture. This is a psalm of lament, of sorrow of one who is suffering. The title that you see written in many Bibles is, My God, why have you forsaken me? It is the very first line of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And many of us know that these are the words that Jesus quotes. He recites these very words as he is dying on the cross. Matthew 27 tells us Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in this passage, in verse 16, you will notice something interesting. It says this, For dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 3 is he is saying that these men that are coming upon you are coming into the churches and teaching these false teachings are the same kind of men that are listed here in Psalm 22. They are those who oppose God's Messiah. Ultimately, they are those who put Jesus Christ upon the cross. They are the the dogs. They are the evil workers. They are the ones who pierce his flesh. They are mutilating Jesus on the cross. And he's showing the character of these men, that ultimately these men are opposed to Jesus Christ. They actually do not love Jesus despite what their words tell you. These are men who are fundamentally opposed to Jesus. It's an ironic thing that these men are likely Jews. They proclaim that they are the circumcised, the true circumcision. What is likely the case is they said, yes, you need to follow Jesus, but you also need to add circumcision. You need to add the Old Testament law to follow in your life as a way to identify yourselves as truly following the Messiah. Faith in Jesus Christ alone was not sufficient for salvation. You had to also add circumcision to confirm your salvation, to complete your salvation. It is ironic because they claim to be representing the Messiah. Yet here Paul is saying, no, you are the very people who subjected the Messiah to death. And if they do not spare Jesus Christ, they will not spare God's flock. They will not spare God's people. So how do these men come to destroy? They come to destroy through teaching. Through teaching. The way they oppose Jesus Christ is a very subtle way of opposition. See, it's not necessarily open opposition to Jesus. They may even take his name on their lips. They may even say, yes, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. But they're going to add something to Jesus. You need to add circumcision. This is why Paul says, we are the true circumcision." even if you're circumcised in your flesh or not. And Paul warns the Philippians, and we are here warned today as those who can find this teaching taking seed and root in our hearts. And that is why Paul warns us of this teaching. What is this teaching? It is the default mode of our fallen human nature. It is what we all default to in our sinfulness. 
This is what Paul calls the flesh throughout Scripture. It is fundamentally this. We think that we can do things that are righteous in God's sight, and because of those things, He will accept us. It's very simple. I do good, therefore God accepts me. They teach God's law. These are not people who are opposed to God's law. They don't say, don't follow God's law. They actually promote it. But the promotion is this. There are fundamental things that you must do in order to inherit eternal life. It may not be explicitly said by them, but the implicit message from them is faith in Jesus Christ is not enough to save you. Believing in Jesus Christ for salvation is not enough. There is something more that you must do in order to be saved. They believe that you must depend upon yourself to finish or complete your salvation. They say, as verse 3 tells us, to put confidence in the flesh. They believe that we have the power in ourselves to obey God's law. They believe that all our obedience to God is part of what is going to bring us to salvation, part of what is going to bring us to the blessed life. This is how they oppose Jesus Christ. They set up another standard of righteousness outside of Jesus. And Paul warns this church for two reasons. He warns this church about these men, and we are warned today about people who would teach that kind of teaching because of two effects that it will have. The first is that we will use our good works to destroy others. It is the greatest lie of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness thinks that it's doing good. It thinks, I am doing the right thing. But it is a fountain of destroying others. It is the fountain of justifying destroying other people. It's what drove the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the crowds, and the Roman courts to crucify Jesus. They thought that what they were doing was the right thing to do. They were self-righteous. This man is evil. He opposes God. John or Jesus even tells his disciples that this is what's going to happen to them. He says to his disciples, they, these religious leaders in Jerusalem, will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Paul says this about who he was. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was doing the right thing. And the problem with self-righteousness is it always seeks to display itself. It does not try to remain hidden. Paul lists all the ways that he was displayed as a righteous person. He had things he could point to and say, yes, These are things that demonstrate that I am approved by God, that I am in the right. 
Here's my resume. Here's my list of all the ways that I can have confidence that I'm right. But the problem with self-righteousness is that it always needs others. It always needs somebody else to affirm that you are right. That's why he says about these people in the book of Galatians that they are trying to defraud you. They are trying to make a public spectacle of you. Having you circumcised. Having you follow the dietary laws of the old covenant. This is why we feel righteous when we want to make everyone know about our cause. Maybe you know this phrase, virtue signaling. Maybe you've seen it online. In fact, I guarantee you have seen it online. It is when people want to make known that they're doing the right thing. They publicly proclaim to everyone around them that they're doing the right thing, that they are opposing the right thing. Or they are standing for the right thing. You see this in those who protest against violence against blacks, which is a good thing to be opposed to. Violence against a person or a group of people. And you see this also in those who protest abortion. A good thing to be opposed to. Oftentimes I wonder if it's much more about them the protesters, than it is about the people on the other side of the issue who need to hear about that. These are both good things. But self-righteousness must always make itself known. And when we do that, we push others away. We suppress them. We bind them. We chain them with our righteousness, saying, you must be like me. And it destroys them. But the other problem of self-righteousness is that it does not just destroy others. It destroys us. The irony of self-righteousness is that we think it will make us more acceptable. But our efforts cannot make us more acceptable in any way, shape, or form. That's precisely what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Self-righteousness is the highest form of blindness. See, a sinner who recognizes that they're a sinner knows that they're not righteous. They know I'm a dirty person. I'm filthy. I have sin in my life. But the self-righteous not only fail to see who they are, they actually think they're presenting things that are righteous to God. They think that their good works are actually righteous before God. And they get to this place because of what they do with God's law. They ignore parts of the law. There are two ways that people do this. There are two sides of the same coin. We call them legalism and antinomianism. That's a big word. I'll explain it in a second. But legalism ultimately says, I have fulfilled the law in my own strength. 
But what does Jesus say to these men? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They have ignored part of God's law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They have their own set of rules that they follow. And they keep those. They define the limits of what it means to be righteous. And if I follow those set of rules, then I'm a righteous person. Now, we might think that's something that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day does. But Christian, you do it too. And I do it too. We set up lists in our lives of things that we say, if I do this, I'm a righteous person. If I keep these standards, then that is going to define me as a righteous person. Now, that may be true in one sense. There may be a sense in which that might define you as a righteous person. Jesus tells these Pharisees, you should have done those things, but you also should have done these. Don't stop doing those things. But we create this set of lists of rules that we need, think we need to follow in order to be a righteous person. But there's a second form of ignoring God's law. It's called antinomianism. Anti, against, nomos. That's the Greek word for law. You're against the law. You basically say the law no longer applies. The legalist says only part of God's law applies. The licentious person says God's law has no meaning for my life anymore. I'm free. I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. This is what Paul confronts in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The reason we do this, the reason we ignore parts or all of God's law, is because if we actually look at God's law and see who we really are, We would reject it. We do not want to see who we really are. Jesus encounters multiple people in his ministry who do this. The story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He comes to him and says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? You know the commandments. And he lists it for him. And what does the young man say to him? All these from my youth I have kept. This man thinks he's actually kept God's law. What does Jesus do for him? I'll show you right where you do not keep God's law. The one place in your life where you are not obedient to the Lord. And Jesus brings that up. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. What happens to that man? They say, yes, I'm going to go do that. No, Jesus reveals his heart. You are a lawbreaker. A lawyer in Matthew chapter 10 or Luke chapter 10 comes to Jesus and asks this same question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And how does that lawyer respond to Jesus? Matthew, Luke tells us 
Seeking to justify himself, he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then what story does Jesus tell that man right after that? The story of the Good Samaritan. He shows him, no, you don't actually follow God's law. You don't. The story of the Good Samaritan is about how we all fail to keep God's law. It's the story of who we are not. We are blind to ourselves. We think we can actually keep God's law. And if Jesus came here, he would sit down with every single one of us and show us tenderly and lovingly everywhere you fail to keep God's law. And he would show you, you are a sinner. We make up a form of God's law so we can feel good about ourselves. All the, to- all the while, we fail to see that we are utterly lost and incapable of keeping any of God's law truly. And that is the teaching of these men. That is the teaching of these men. They teach you that, yes, you can actually keep God's law completely. And they send to you a form of it. And they set it up for you. And then they define that as true obedience. But here today, that is the path of destruction. That's the path of destruction for us. But what is the path of safety? What is the path of safety out of this? Paul tells us a few things in this passage. The first thing he tells us is in verse 1. It's this strange thing in chapter 3, verse 1 that he says. It almost feels out of place in this text. Even when I first read it, I thought, Paul, how did you get from a servant risking his life to help the church to talking about these evil men coming to deceive us? And here he talks about rejoicing. Rejoice, my brothers, in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Rejoice in God. This means ultimately that we are content in what God has provided. We know that what God has provided for us is sufficient. The Pharisee says it's not sufficient. What God has given you in Jesus is not enough. But as Christians, we rejoice because we know we have everything we need. Our constant struggle and the struggle of every single one of us is we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We use other people as a standard in our lives. But all this does is breeds discontent in our lives. We think this standard is achievable. And we evaluate ourselves based on it. And ultimately it breeds self-righteousness because then if we actually achieve it, we think we're good. We think we're okay. But we fail to see that everything that we have in this life is a gift from God. Even the good works that we do, Paul says, is a gift from God. We saw this in chapter 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
That is the source of our contentment. That is the source of our rejoicing is that everything that we need has been provided by God. God is the one who produces what is pleasing in his sight in us. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. Paul even says, I worked harder than anybody, but not me. It was the grace of God at work in me. And even what is produced by us is cleansed by Christ so that it can be in the presence of God. And that's what it means by when Paul says we worship by the Spirit of God. Verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Our lives are conceived of as an act of worship given to God. But we know that whatever comes from us is because God's Spirit is at work in us, producing what is pleasing in God's sight. And we live in dependence on God's Holy Spirit. The legalist does not depend upon the Holy Spirit. They depend upon themselves, their flesh. They do not worship by the Spirit. But the last way of safety is glory in Jesus Christ. These are those who have looked on themselves and found that not only do they have a little bit of righteousness, or not any, a little bit, but they have none. When they look on themselves, they don't even find righteousness, they find unrighteousness. They're like the publican when he's in the temple, not declaring all the good things that he's done. He stands in the temple and beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when you look upon Jesus Christ, you find everything that you need. You find your glory. There it is. You realize, I have no righteousness, but Jesus Christ has all the righteousness that I need. It is perfect. It is complete. And it is given to me freely by Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, that is the man who goes home justified. Right before God. It is ironic We want to be righteous. You don't want to know how to become righteous. You say, I don't have any. I'm not righteous. And whatever I do for myself is just filled with unrighteousness. But my righteousness is in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And whatever good thing that God produces in me, that's from him. Your confidence and your hope is in Jesus Christ. He is your glory. And so today, if you are here and you know yourself as a self-righteous person, you know that there's ways that you find this teaching in yourself. Repent and turn from it. Acknowledge that you are a sinner who is unrighteous before God. And cling tightly to Jesus Christ, 
who alone is righteous, who gives his righteousness to you freely, and you receive it simply by faith, by believing, yes, Jesus' righteousness is mine. That is our hope, and that is our glory this morning. That is the pathway of safety. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us as a flock, as your people from those who would come in among us and teach us these false teachings, who would oppose Jesus Christ, that our righteousness, our salvation is wholly in him, completely in him. And help us to find and place our faith continually and trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he will bring us home. He will lead us and guide us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.